Hi everyone, welcome to the fifth episode of Barking from the Wooftops. My name is Jim Gillis and I'll be your host today. Today's guest, Dr Chris Parkle, is a board certified veterinary behaviourist and is the owner and lead clinician at the Animal Behaviour Clinic in Portland, Oregon. Dr Parkle lectures extensively both domestically and internationally, teaches courses at multiple veterinary schools in the United States and has authored numerous articles and book chapters for veterinarians and pet owners. He is a sought-after expert witness for legal cases and serves on the editorial advisory board for DVM 360. He is also Vice President of Veterinary Behaviour for Instinct Dog Behaviour and Training, as well as the co-owner of Instinct Portland. So today, we're going to discuss the client side of behaviour cases in terms of how we interact with clients and navigate difficult conversations. We are also going to discuss the role of a veterinary behaviourist. Join me in welcoming Chris to the podcast. Good day, sir. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Yourself? Uh, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Just came back from a nice, long, brisk walk with the dog through the neighbourhood. So I'm, oh, I'm feeling good right now. Great stuff. Lovely. It's good morning to you, I believe. It's good evening where I am. So uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Chris. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Absolutely. Ah, great stuff. I wonder if we could maybe start with just a little bit more background on yourself, if you don't mind. You know, maybe your journey to how you got into behaviour. And also you have that little awesome dog in your profile picture. Is that an English Bull Terrier, Chris? He's about 75% English Bull, yes. Uh, and and then another quarter Basenji or a miscellaneous Terrier, depending on the genetic test that you look at. Wow. So, yeah, he's... He's a piece of work. He's not, uh, full transparency, he's not the type of dog that I would typically gravitate toward. Um, He's got a huge personality, which is great. Uh, I generally gravitate a little bit more towards, yes, lower energy, but also perhaps a little bit more, shall we say, biddable, and perhaps a little bit more influenceable than uh, what I know the Bull Terrier breed to be. So he's taught me a few things along the way, and uh, he's he's a striking dog for photos as well, so I, I run with that. Yeah, he's gorgeous, he's gorgeous. <laughs> and, and, and we were just about to touch on there, and your kind of journey of how you got to where you are just now, Chris, if you wouldn't mind just taking us through that, I'd really appreciate it. Absolutely. So I've been doing what I do now uh, as a a veterinarian and uh, someone who is either board certified or someone who has really done exclusively the the work within that veterinary behavior space, gosh, since 2004. So about 17 years now, I've been sort of in this particular space. Prior to that, I was a general practice veterinarian. In fact, when I graduated from veterinary school, I had zero intention of specialty. I had a little bit of interest in behavior just from a wouldn't that be fun to incorporate that in what I do on a daily basis in the practice, Uh, but didn't really, well, truthfully, I had zero interest in going on for additional education. I was like, I'm done. I'm ready to like earn a living. I'm ready to have clients. I'm ready to like be my professional self. And yeah, I was about a year, year and a half in, I started doing a little bit of additional continuing education in the behavior space. And number one, fell in love. Number two, realized that I had a a decent level of skill. Uh, And and number three, really actually made that shift for the clients themselves, more so than for the animals or for really trying to address the animal side of things. And that was actually a realization that just came to me in the last probably uh, three to four years was sort of the kind of the, the motivating factors that actually had me go into behavior as a discipline, uh, even though I got into veterinary medicine for 
for the animals and sort of that that healing, wanting to help. Uh, but yeah, the, the shift over to behavior was just as much for, for the people. So the, the, the two-legged animals, so to speak. Uh, and so, so yeah, that's been a, a big part of the journey. Uh, in the time that I've been working as a vet behaviorist, I've opened or I've owned multiple practices, both in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area of Minnesota, so in the central U.S., uh, and then now out in Portland, Oregon, uh, operating both house call exclusive practices and then now functioning more as a within hospital uh, practice. And now, of course, doing a whole lot of telemedicine as well. So it's given me a nice, well-rounded experience in the discipline. Awesome. And you're across species, uh, Chris, any specialism or do you work right across all species? So I will consult across all species, especially where that intersection between sort of medical concerns and behavior exists. I'm happy to consult. Um, I only treat uh, dogs and cats primarily within the practice. The reason for that for me is that I've kept up on their unique medical needs, which allows me then to really dive into that consultant and veterinary role versus, let's say, equines or avian species I, I will consult with veterinarians, but the the rule is they have to know the medical side, and then I can figure out where the behavioral side intersects with that. But I don't feel quite confident enough in my own skills now to really feel like I would be able to to really flesh out all of those areas that might be relevant for those cases. Gotcha, gotcha. And I, and I guess I would like to start by maybe defining your, your role as a veterinary behaviorist. And, and what sort of process you went through to become one? You started off as a vet and then became a behaviorist and married the two and became a veterinary behaviorist. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. Yeah. So the the veterinary behaviorist journey requires the veterinary degree, first and foremost, uh, which sort of gives us a, a bit of a different toolbox or a different skill set when it comes to how we assess cases, looking through them more through sort of the medical model or the medical lens. Not to say that that's better or worse than other models like ABA or any of the other approaches, only to say that they're not the same. Uh, and that's actually one of the things that I love is being able to say, cool, this is how I look at this case. What do you see? You know, what, what, what is your lens? And, and again, sort of where, where, where can we sort of create more of a three-dimensional image of exactly what may be going on here? And, and then what does that open the door to uh, in terms of intervention opportunities? So, so, so that's part of it. But uh, yeah, the, the veterinary behavior uh, education, if you will, includes residency training that varies anywhere from three to six years, depending on the type of program that one goes through. Uh, it's heavily mentored, as well as requiring the individual to publish primary research, uh, write a couple of case reports that demonstrate your skill level, not only in treating cases, but also describing and sharing that information in a scientific way, uh, and completing a pretty significant amount of, of graduate level coursework, uh, roughly equipped equivalent of uh, about a master's degree. Uh, again, without the thesis, it's not a master's, but in terms of the, the amount of coursework that's required, it's, it's reasonably comparable, at least with the programs that I've looked at. And then you sit an exam at the end, and, and that's the, uh, the, the process of board certification. Wow. Wow. And quite a long process to go through, I would imagine. Um, and, and how does that then differ? I guess that you touched on that briefly about the role of kind of behavior consultants and trainers. Where does the veterinary behavior role sit within that kind of structure, if you like? Yeah, it, it, it varies a little bit based on who you ask. Uh, so I'll give you my perspective on that because, well, 
that's my perspective. And I'm the one talking with you today. So that's the one we get. I, I love the roles of the trainers and the behavior consultants, and especially the, their level of expertise and understanding the science of behavior change and really working with clients and, and collaborating in those ways. The unique piece that, that we're able to bring to the table from the veterinary behavior perspective is ideally, yes, those skill sets that I just mentioned in terms of science of behavior change and understanding all the different principles and also a thorough, comprehensive understanding of the medical issues. So if we're looking at how does pain manifest, what does the neurobiology, uh, you know, Influ what, what does that influence look like, whether we're talking primary neurologic conditions like seizure disorders and other things like that, whether we're talking endocrine or hormonal issues, how might that show up? What are some of those developmental stages? Again, thinking physically, physiologically, how does that show up? And especially when we're talking about things like pharmacological support for behavioral issues, what does that look like within the individual? What are the indications, the contraindications, the interactions, the polypharmacy sorts of things? We're able to look at all of those things and pull in individual elements of those skill sets based on what the case in front of us requires. Sure. And maybe we could talk about some of the criteria that a behavior consultant might meet for a referral to a veterinary behaviorist there, Chris, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and quite honestly, and this this varies a little bit based on the practice. There are some individuals who really do work more on a referral basis. And this does actually change based on country as well, based on the way in which veterinary medicine functions. Uh, that's been my experience when I've done some uh cross-ocean consulting uh, across over to the UK as well, is that I understand the process is a bit different based on where we are in the world. In the US, at least, most of my colleagues are open to taking even just primary self-referred cases. You know, I'm a pet owner. I've got an issue. I want to go to the vet behaviorist. Here we go. Uh, but we do work a lot collaboratively with trainers, behavior consultants, and other veterinary team members, uh, knowing that, you know, at least within my practice, if it's a patient that requires extensive diagnostic testing, especially including things like MRI or CT scans or advanced diagnostics, I'm going to be working with other veterinarians or specialists to perform those. And if it's a patient that will benefit from extensive coaching of the owner or even direct education of the animal itself, I'm going to be working with trainers or behavior consultants rather than me being the one to do, you know, to be guiding the client through each and every one of those sessions. So I really think that our specialty is one that thrives on collaboration and really exaggerating each of those individual roles and say, cool, here's what I bring. What what do you bring and what can we do together that's greater than the sum of our parts? Yeah, it's so exciting that collaboration too when you're working with different professionals. So you work with trainers, behavior consultants, veterinarians themselves? Directly absolutely. Them. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And we, we do a lot of collaboration there. We, we try to make sure that, uh, that, that they're at least aware of what it is we're doing on the behavioral side, knowing that uh, not every veterinarian has a strong interest in behavior. Many of them are, are more than happy to say, no, 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 I referred it to you. You go with it. Uh, yeah, just, you know, you take care of it. Let me know if you need me. But then we do have a lot of our veterinarians, uh, especially those who uh, perhaps operate uh, or work in an area that's somewhat underserved by the veterinary behavior community just based on location. And so in those cases, then rather than me seeing that client and that animal myself, we do more of a vet to vet collaboration service to really say, hey, not just what can we do for this animal 
but can I give you two or three more nuggets that are going to help the rest of the animals in your practice as well? And how do we do that together? Sure. And it, it's such a long journey for a veterinarian anyway to bolt on behavior on top of that could be, you know, I guess beyond the realms of what would be achievable in that role. And I guess to supplement it with that, that behavior would be fantastic. And I guess that's where the veterinary behaviors comes into it, isn't it? You've got the veterinary skills, but also you have the behavior knowledge to supplement that. Exactly. And sometimes I think about my role, especially in those cases, um, you know, yes, as a diagnostician, yes, as a clinician, but in some cases, almost as a translator, where I'm able to say, hey, when a client says this, this is often what they mean. Let's ask two or three more questions to really make sure that we're on the right track there before we make assumptions. Or if I'm talking with the veterinarian and they've got a perhaps a training report in front of them, and we've got a trainer or a consultant who says, oh, we're doing uh, you know this particular method and we're utilizing this method of desensitization, counter conditioning, and we've advanced thresholds and these three parameters. And I get my veterinarian who's like, yeah, I don't have a clue what any of this means um, and vice versa. If I'm, if I'm trying to help the consultant understand either what sort of feedback they can provide to the veterinary team or how some of the veterinary inputs may really influence the way we approach a particular case, especially when we're dealing with physical issues, again, like pain or, you know, physical ailments of some case. So that translator role is a whole lot of fun for me. It's a great way of putting it to for sure. And what, what's the referral process like then? Can that come really from any direction, from vets, from behavior consultants, from, from trainers. Um, I guess that will, that will keep, you, keep you busy. You mentioned the pain component to, to behavior cases, and it's something I wanted to talk to you about and, and the prevalence of underlying medical issues in behavior cases. Can you give a rough estimate? There is a comparison in the UK where we thought about 70% of noise phobia cases had an underlying medical condition potentially driving it. Would you Could you give a percentage on that, or is that too too vague, do you think? I think it's a really challenging one to nail down. I think we can look at some of the, you know, let's say, let's look at these hundred dogs who have presented with noise phobia. And then we can look at their individual cases and we could say of these hundred, 70 or 40 or, you know, 52 had these particular components. Where I think it gets really tricky is based on how you ask the question, you can get very different answers based on the individual's level of awareness by individual, I either mean the pet owner, if they're answering a survey or the primary care veterinarian, if they're the one who's, you know, providing some of the input, we don't always get what I would consider to be a hundred percent accurate information. So it's tricky. I think in some cases we're over-representing in other cases, I think we're perhaps under-representing. And in others, we say these are probably two completely independent conditions where this is an animal who has a primary noise phobia, potentially because of emotional trauma or, you know, insufficient socialization or any, any, you know, any one of those inputs. And it's an animal who has pain. How do we really say, is this a correlation? Is there any degree of, you know, direct impact or are they completely and totally separate from one another? That really requires, in my opinion, at least, a much more involved investigative approach to say, well, okay, let's understand the behavioral pattern. Let's treat pain. Let's see how the behavior changes and and, and vice versa. And that's when we can get a better sense of whether we think that the pain is, in fact, manifesting as behavior or contributing to or, again, completely and totally separate. And we see cases of all of those variations when they come through the practice. Sure. Sure. I wonder if we could maybe go through the importance of ruling potential underlying medical issues out in behaviour cases. And uh, it's so easy to miss something that could be 
a massive contributor, as you say, you know, and I wonder, is that something you would recommend for every behaviour case for a behaviour consultant, particularly if you're taking on more complex case? It's, yeah, and again, it's it's tricky. You know, the, the famous answer, of course, it depends. Sure. You know, we hear this over and over and over again, and I, it almost feels a little tongue-in-cheek to say it now, but, sure. but, it, but it does depend because there are many of the cases that come through that are complex, that are, uh, you know, showing a significantly... Um, complicated behavioral manifestation. And it, it, it's entirely possible that it's completely due to behavioral causes. So I don't necessarily assume that because a case is severe or complex, therefore it's going to be you know, happening due to a medical issue. And, and yet also some of the more simple cases, you know, a dog who's a little bit head shy, you know, might be because of neck pain or ear issues or dental pain. So, so it, for me, it's, it's in the best possible case. Yes. We would say there is a behavioral change. There's an animal who's displaying a behavior that is perhaps unsafe or undesired at the very least. Yes. Let's get a comprehensive physical exam to see whether or not anything shows up there. Knowing that you know, depending on that veterinary practitioner's level of understanding, they might miss some things. And I don't say that in any sort of a, a judgment or a slant or a criticism, unless you really, as I said before, sort of understand that intersection, you may not know that, ooh, these, you know, particular combinations of behavior patterns are really suggestive of, you know, ocular or eye pain. You know, why would you know that unless you know that so you wouldn't be looking at that in quite that same way? Or these are indications of a particular, um, you know, triglyceride level disorder that may show up as aberrant behavior without a pattern. Like, why would you know that unless you know that? And those are things you're going to miss on a routine physical exam. So I do think that it gets complicated to really rule all of that out as much as we would like to. So practically impossible in some respects to rule out all medical issues or contributions to, to that behavior. Yeah, it, it is. And that's why I, you know, I love the collaboration piece, you know, and sometimes we'll do, you know, a physical exam and say, I don't see any reason for this animal to be showing a particular behavior pattern, at least not today. <laughs> you know, let's see how this animal responds to whatever interventions feel appropriate. And let's leave that back door open again. So on the off chance, if we see something else that changes our picture, we've left, our, left an opportunity there for, for investigating a bit further. Yeah, sure. And, and one element that we wanted to talk about today was about the client side of communication and behavior cases. And I think it's something you have a very well-developed set of skills. And if that's fair to say, uh, Chris, was that something that came naturally to you or did you have to develop that over time? It's definitely been something I've developed. Um, I, I would like to say that, you know, uh, well, how should I put this? I enjoy it. I really, I, I'm passionate about the client experience and about the communication. So I think I probably perhaps lean into that side of practice a bit more than some of, than some of my colleagues do. Um, and it's, it's allowed me to see some potential opportunities for advancing my skill set there that exists. Um, I'm grateful to say that I had a lot of exposure early in my career to the veterinary social work profession, uh, which really expanded my lens to say not only what's going on physically, not only what's going on within the, the quadrants of behavior change if we restrict ourselves to the quadrants, but also what's going on in the rest of that family unit and how might that influence what's going on, whether we're talking about environmental influences, whether we're talking about social or emotional factors, and at the same time recognizing where those influences exist, but also recognizing that as a veterinary behaviorist, that's actually not my training. 
that's not my job to dive in there and take on the weight of some of those other factors, but rather, can we identify it? Can we name it? Can we either figure out a way through or around and, and and sort of still accomplish what it is that we're looking to accomplish. Sure. And do you feel that weight of expectation sometimes in cases? I, I certainly do personally. Kim Brophy really helped me go over some of that with uh, with our really lovely insights um, but, and not taking that too much onto ourselves in terms of solving every problem that's out there because it's just not possible to do. Is that, is that fair to say? It is fair to say, and I, and especially some of my early cases, um, you know, really up until recent years, as I've developed a bit more of a skill set in that particular area as well, I've carried the weight of some of those cases for, you know, for more than a decade. Wow. Uh, that That's not healthy. That's not healthy. That's not benefiting the pet. It's not benefiting the next pet. It's, it's you know, if anything is becoming a bit of a, a distraction or a distractor from, from, from really putting my efforts into new cases. And, and yet there's also something to learn from those cases as well. So I'm not saying we just sort of wash our hands and move on and go next, you know, this is not an assembly line. This is something where there, there is value that comes from, from each of those cases, but also in acknowledging what I can control is my efforts and my intent. I can't always control how that lands. I can, I can be accountable for it, but I can't control it. And I certainly cannot control what happens for that animal, for that client, for that household, the moment I've stepped away. And so I've really had to lean into what is within my control. Um, and even there, sort of maybe pulling back and saying what's within my influence. Sure. And, and, and really just acknowledging the things that exist beyond that, I have to then really occupy my role to say, I'm going to understand a case to the best of my ability and the time and the space and the resources that I have. I'll present options and hopefully allow that client to make the decisions that are right for them. And as they need additional support or feedback, then I'm available for that as well. But I can't be the force that pushes. I can't be the force that pulls. I can't work harder, care more, do more than my client does. I have to basically be there. Uh, in, in some cases, I compare myself as, as the GPS, right? It's not my hands on the steering wheel. It's not my foot on the accelerator. I'm not even the one who decided if we got in the car. But I can help you understand what the route looks like. Uh, I can help us to recalculate when needed. I can give us sort of a reasonable prediction of where I think we're going to land and when. But I can also not take it personally, you know, like the GPS that is a bit more mechanical there. Um, there is no value attached to one destination or another, or even for the route, for that matter. I'm, I'm really, really there to reflect and, and provide additional feedback where I can. Sure. And each client we work with, both dog and human, are, are completely different. So we need to, I guess, adapt our communication style accordingly. And, and do you have any advice in dealing with clients in that regard, especially the ones that are maybe more resistant to change and and how do you go about setting those expectations with kind of people with that resistance yeah i think it's for me it's it's sort of trying to figure out as best i can as quickly as i can where are they starting from you know is this a client who is there because of family pressure and you know they're there because someone else has sort of coerced them into seeking help. Maybe a family member was bitten by an animal or something along those lines. And they're really not that motivated to do anything at all. Me stepping in and trying to create a lot of solutions really probably isn't going to land particularly well. And I'm actually going to 
you know, potentially burn myself out in the process. So I need to identify that from the get go and, and just ask some questions. If I had solutions that would help you to improve safety, improve relationships, decrease stress, decrease, you know, risk factors, is that something you're interested in learning more about? Because if the answer there is no, I don't really have a lot I can do, right? I, we have to do this as a collaboration at some level. Now, if the client says, nah, that's not really interested in me, but can you tell me how to get my family off my back? Yeah, I can probably help you with that. Like that's a different focus of behavior change, but let's have that conversation. And who knows, maybe I'm going to be able to weave some thoughts in there that opens that client up to the possibility that, oh, Actually, some some you know relatively simple management changes won't require a lot of effort for me, but they may have a dramatic impact on the way in which you know this all sort of shows up at the next family gathering, for example. Cool. If that's all we accomplish today, but you're happy, I'm happy. So it's it's identifying where they are, what do they want to accomplish, um, and and asking hopefully some good questions that allow us to really tease out where we're headed. Yeah. And I guess that non-compliance can be a major factor in the outcome of a case uh, and, and I wonder do you have I mean, lack of compliance can be born from various different origin points right we are dealing with people who are maybe under stress duress distress themselves and I wonder if you've got any examples of gaining compliance or any tips in terms of getting them on board when they are in themselves under a lot of stress with with their dog or animal yeah, I think the first part for me is really to ask questions um, and and not be afraid of asking difficult questions. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, if I'm seeing a, a case and perhaps I'm in the second or the third revisit and I just don't feel like we're getting any traction, there's an ongoing feeling like, hey, I'm giving you what I think is really good advice, but for whatever reason, nothing's moving. So I'll, I, you know, now in my career, I'll call that out, not as a place of judgment or criticism, but to say, you know, from my perspective, this conversation today actually feels pretty similar to the one we had before. I like to know or be able to demonstrate the areas where we're moving forward from one session to the next. I don't have the perception that that's happening. Does that fit with your perception as well? And usually by the time I'm noticing it, the client's already frustrated as well. So then we're at least we can, we're kind of looking at the problem kind of shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. What's going on over here? We're not, we're not moving forward. What can we do? Do you have any thoughts of anything that may be holding back progress? Is it an understanding of expectations? Is it needing some additional support for the actual hands-on mechanics? Right now, are you just, you know, are you strapped with work and life and quarantine and it's just too much? Okay, like then let's redefine our expectations. Let's figure out what do we want to accomplish going forward. And so I, I think for me, the, the place where I, I've really grown in that area is, again, not shying away from the question, but also trying to find a soft way in where I can learn more about where the client is coming from as opposed to assuming or presuming that I understand that they just aren't doing the work, they're lazy, they're, you know, obstructive in some way. I actually don't know. I, I probably know a tiny, tiny, tiny slice of what's going on in their world. So by being curious about that, I, I may get the opportunity to, to influence the outcome in a different way. Sure. And I guess when we're setting those expectations, it is it is difficult for these people, isn't it? They are working with, you know, potentially um, a lot of barriers to success in terms of moving forward with their dog or, or, or animal. And, and I wonder maybe if we could talk a little bit about some of 
the kind of labels that are used and, and how we can maneuver around them. I've saw some 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 great seminars with yourself before, Chris, where you deal with this really well. And I think it'd be really beneficial to, to anyone listening about unpacking some of the, the labels, which could be useful in some respects. Maybe if I give you some examples, we can talk through that and how you work around it. And, and we may hear people talking about you know, terms like dominant or territorial or stubborn and disobedient. And, and, and whilst, you know, we could be, you know, direct about challenging those preconceived ideas, it does give us uh, insight into how they interpret the world, the lens of how they view the world. Is that, is that fair to say, Chris? I think it's a really fair way to say that, Jimmy. I think that there's a, especially when we talk about a word like dominant, uh, for example, that, that carries so many versions even of what that looks like. And so rather than, as I as I know that I did earlier in my career, if someone says, well, you know, I think she's reacting this way because she's a dominant dog. You know, it's like, okay, hold on. Let, let me get my soapbox here. You know, okay, no, no, your dog is not dominant. It's this, 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 you know, and I go into my entire ethology lecture and the client's like, whoa, like, I don't know what just happened here, but clearly I struck a nerve. And then I'd have to look back and go, oh yeah, no, that probably wasn't the most effective way to create behavior change there. Whereas now, if a, if a client says, oh, no, I think that this is happening because she's, you know, she's a dominant dog. Tell me more. What does that mean? A lot of different thoughts come into my mind when I hear that word dominant. What's your definition? What aspects of her behavior fit underneath that umbrella? And it, it allows me the opportunity to, to find out, is this a client who's utilizing that word because that's what someone at the dog park told them? And they don't really even have an emotional attachment to it. They just actually thought they were using the right lingo and they're more than happy to change versus someone who perhaps has, you know, a, a multi-decade history of really leaning into pack dynamics and alpha hierarchies and all of that. In which case, then I have to have a, a conversation at some point to say that my viewpoint is going to be a little bit different than that. Can I share with you the lens that I'm looking through and then let's find out if there are some similarities that are going to work for both of us, or are there some things that we're going to need to shift? And, and so again, in, in either case, I'm really, rather than sort of meeting someone head on, it's more of, can I invite you in? Like, I've got some stuff. Like, I, I, I know I know some stuff. Like, I've been doing this for a long time as a professional, and there's a lot of stuff I don't know. Most importantly, I don't know what you're thinking. So tell me about that, and then I'm going to ask you if I can share some information back is today a good time to unpack what dominance is or isn't? Or should we leave that for another day? I'm happy to go either way. What works for you? But, but really thinking about that label as rather than making an assumption, you know, or assuming, oh my gosh, they're calling their dog, you know, stubborn or stupid or, you know, whatever that is, rather than now painting sort of a picture or a caricature of that client and what they're looking at, I'm just going to ask a follow-up question. What does that look like? Can you give me two examples of when stubborn shows up? Because, you know, I know from the work that I do in practice, the vast majority of the dogs who have ended up with a label of stubborn are either, um, and, and this is really oversimplifying it, but, but either have never been given the benefit of actual clarity of education. So they're clueless. They just don't know what's expected of them. So they look stubborn because they're confused. Or we've got some influence of fear, anxiety, stress, emotional arousal, something that's acting as a barrier that's preventing that animal from being perhaps as, as flexible or as able to opt in for that training experience as we'd like. In either case, 
neither of those are really about being stubborn. And once we understand that, then we can come at it from a completely different angle. And I don't even really have to sort of get that client to let go of the stubborn word. I can just give them a new version of what's going on and ask them if that if that resonates. Sure. And it's an interesting one because I think that it varies per consultant or per, per behaviorist where some people will meet it head on. Some people are happy just to park it entirely and just not deal with it. Deal with it later once we've demonstrated or we've shown a better way of how to engage with that. But, but it does give us insight, doesn't it? And I think that tendency for kind of human abstraction, you know, kind of like just labeling things a bit, it really is problematic, isn't it? Because when we yes. label a behavior, we don't necessarily look at the observable behavior. We look at the lens of how we see that behavior through our own prism. Is that, is that a fair way of, of, of saying it, Chris? Absolutely. And and as you say, the, the insight that we can gain from asking some of those questions may give us a little bit more perspective, even on how some of the other aspects of our treatment or our training plan may show up later. You know, if it is that client, for example, who's really invested in hierarchy, and that's really important for them. Well, I might, let's say I'm working with a dog who has more of a generalized anxiety tendency. And I find that for many of those animals, creating really consistent communication through cue response reward sequences can create a lot of structure and predictability. So I I feel very strongly about that for some of my patients. On the other hand, if this is a client who's leaning into pack dynamics and I'm talking about cue response rewards, they may hear that in a completely different angle and their brain goes into nothing in life is free or, you know, I need to coerce the outcome because I am ultimately in control as the alpha. None of which is what I said, but those are things that kind of run in parallel tracks. And so if I've got a mindset of where that client may be seeing this particular issue, it may allow me to even say, oh, this is going to sound really similar to something you may have run into before. Can I paint a picture of how it looks just a little bit different? You know, in fact, it's actually cool. You're already familiar. The groundwork is there, but there's two or three really important but subtle differences that will make or break whether or not we're successful. Can we have that conversation today and then see where that takes us? Sure. Makes sense. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about uh, boundary setting. And this is something I think I've seen before in the past with yourself, Chris, which was wonderful in terms of the, the way you articulated boundary setting, which can be challenging when we work with with people. Let, let, let's be honest, it can be difficult where maybe people overstretch or maybe lean too much into the behaviour consultant or clinical behaviourist, veterinary behaviourist. And, and we, I guess, need to be careful we don't encroach into the human counselling side too much, particularly if we're not qualified um, yes. to, to do so. And, and how do you avoid that? Do you have any strategies or tips that you could share with us, Chris? Yeah, I think there's there's a, there's a boundary here that comes at it from a couple of different angles. One is, you know, whenever I'm working with a client or an animal, I try to be really comfortable as best I can. Sort of what, what do I feel I can say about this case, whether it's the client, whether it's the animal, whether it's the condition, whether it's, what do I feel really comfortable and confident saying based on what I know and what's within my particular credentials? And the moment I kind of start to get to the fringes of that, I start to slow things down. My wording changes a little bit, you know, from this is this, or this appears to be this, it becomes more of a, this may be consistent with this, or I wonder whether this is a factor. And we start to get a little bit more curious about it, because the the, the further away we are from my core knowledge, the more wiggly I have to be 
about sort of where those lines are drawn. And I have to be really honest with myself where a client may come to me looking for answers. And I don't know is just as good an answer as anything else. And if I'm able to say, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer, but I've got some people who do. You know, I can check in with my neurologist colleague. I can check in with my social worker colleague. I can check in with someone else to figure that out. Or I can make a lateral referral. I'm actually not the best one to act as a translator here. You should call Susie or whoever the the individual is. Let me connect you with her or with him or with them. And we're able to, to make those connections there. And it allows me to be sort of within integrity of what I can do, not feeling like I'm overstretching myself to fill their need if that's not something that really exists within my role. And so that is one place for me where boundaries become really, really relevant. Uh, and I think the other piece that that for me is when I'm working really perhaps more on the client side is that if I feel like my boundaries are being encroached, for example, if I've got a client who's calling me in the middle of the night or is texting me four times a day or, you know, is expecting responses and, you know, via email on the weekend or, you know, needs to be able to get in for an emergency recheck, you know, less than 48 hours notice, no exceptions. You know, those are things that I can take very personally because those are often things that I can't do. And whereas before I may have taken that a bit more uh, offensively, you know, who do they think they are that they can just jump into my world and, you know, make me do these things? Or perhaps I might even thrown those boundaries up in in more of a defensive manner that perhaps wasn't as tactfully communicated. I, I try now to ask more of the question, if, you know, wait a minute, this is a client who's emailing on the weekend. Okay, is this a client where it was a priority for them? And so they wanted to get it off their plate. And they actually have no expectation of a reply. But now I was the one checking my email on the weekend. So it was my own boundary that I sort of violated in that. Or if they truly do have the expectation they're going to hear back, then I have to ask a second question. Did I set the expectation that that's not how this works? Because if I've been, uh, I almost use the word guilty, if I have displayed the behavior pattern of responding at all hours of the day, seven days a week, I've actually set the expectation for the client that I am available 24-7. And then that's on me to redefine or re-clarify that boundary in an educational way. Hey, I got your message. I happened to pop in. I'm more than happy to answer that. In the future, I'm really focusing on responding to emails Monday through Friday from 8 to 5 p.m. You know, if there's something that falls outside of that, just know I'm not likely to see it. I hope that lands well for you. Cool. Something that just sort of reestablishes that boundary versus me stewing on it, carrying the emotional weight or any of those other things that can really just really start to wear us down. Yeah, that's so helpful. And it's something that, uh, that I've suffered from before in the past of sitting at 10 o'clock at night and going through emails and seeing something that at that point you have no control over and then worrying all night and, and not having a great night's sleep. So it's really valuable information. Something I need to do more of, which is setting those expectations early on that you're not 24 hours a day and, and, and we shouldn't be either from a compassion fatigue, emotional fatigue point of view. And I guess that's something that dovetails lovely into one of the questions I want to ask you about that is do you that that will definitely one of your strategies I would imagine Chris in terms of avoiding compassion fatigue and burnout and that type of thing do you have any other tips in terms of that those types of areas in terms of managing stress that type of thing 
I do. And I think this is a place where individuals who are within the behavior change professions have a bit of a leg up here in terms of a skill set that already exists. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we're talking about creating a, a behavior change plan for, let's say, a dog with uh, aggression that appears to be based in fear. Right. So we're working with that animal. I'm not going to go into the mechanics of what we do there, but just conceptually, we're trying to create that threshold, right? We're going to teach skills while that animal is completely calm and relaxed. We're going to try to keep them out of situations where they're over threshold and operating from a place of defensiveness or panic. And yet, if all we do is oscillate between those two extremes, we didn't actually develop a more effective skill set. What we have to be able to do with that animal is sort of feather that edge, help that animal to perceive, let's say it's a dog who is uh, showing a fear response to small children. If I'm doing all of the work in isolation of kids, the dog will never get better. If I turn the dog loose in a playground, bad things are going to happen. But if I can get that dog just close enough or just aware enough that the animal goes, oh, I'm gonna need to figure out what I do next. And then they develop a more effective coping strategy with some help, whether that's operant or classical or, you know, combination of both, whatever it is that we're doing, then we move our threshold. I say that because we do that all the time, right? We're going through that, whether we're doing performance sports, whether we're doing emotional therapy, we do that all the time as we're advancing skill sets. The same thing applies here too, that if I'm saying, oh, I'm going to go on vacation, I'm going to go, you know, invest in self-care for a week. Cool. That's a great way to recharge and recover. But if I just throw myself back into the trenches and I didn't actually develop a skill set that improved my ability to navigate lower and then progressively higher levels of stress or burnout or emotional fatigue, guess what? I'm oscillating between the extremes and it doesn't take many repetitions of that oscillation before I say, you know what? pardon the French, F that, I'm out, I can't do this, because because I literally can't do that. I've not actually developed a skill set that allows me to do this. So being mindful about what would that look like to actually develop coping strategies, and it's something that I'm, I'm reminded of on the human side of therapy. Therapists, for example, are required, as I understand it, to have a therapist of their own to offload the stress that they actually internalize by helping others. We don't do that. We need to. We, you know, it would be super beneficial for us to be able to do that, but we don't. And so many of us, I believe, are, are, are uh, taking on weight for things that we would love to be able to help or fix or improve, but without the affecting coping strategies to actually offload that stress ourselves. So for me, when it comes to this, Yes, client communication is valuable. Yes, understanding our skill set and setting boundaries. All of these things are super important. And what are we doing? How are we actually processing that in a meaningful way, knowing that my way is probably not your way, your way is not my way, but what can you do and what can I do to stay in the game? Yeah, yeah. and it is a real thing in our industry, isn't it? It's very prevalent within veterinary you know, behavior, any care sector really where you are having to care on a, on, a, on a regular basis and that burnout can happen fast and catch up with you quick. And uh, that's some really great information. I think boundary setting would definitely be something I need to develop in, in, in my career and put just a little bit more boundaries in terms of 
you know, when I'm working and how often I'm working and that type of thing, which, yeah, for sure. And I wonder then if we could have, have a conversation about, you know, maybe some clients that are in a similar sort of burnout potentially with, with their animal, dog, whatever. And it maybe came to the point where the outcomes are pretty limited and, and sparse. You know, they're maybe facing trying to rehome their dog that's maybe, you know, bitten somebody, for example, and rescue won't touch them. And they're at that point where they're considering potentially behavioral euthanasia for the case. And I wonder if you could talk around about that, because I find that a really difficult conversation myself to have. Do you have any advice there, Chris? No. I do. I do. Yeah. This is a conversation. I, I was just grateful to, to be able to, to, to host a conversation with, well, with quite a few people uh, in Mike Shikashio's, uh platform within the within the, the aggression and dogs platform. And, you know, around this topic of behavioral euthanasia and how do we navigate that and what does that look like? And so it's, it's something that I really I'm passionate about because it is something that comes up within our work, uh, whether we want it to or not, it comes up. And, you know, I think for, for me, the the honest answer is that I try to check in with my clients and just find out what do they have available? You know, what are their resources, whether that be financial, whether that be emotional, whether it be, you know, logistical, you know, household, uh, family resources, what do we have available to us? And, and acknowledging the fact that, you know, not everything has a rosy outcome. Uh, it's not only just like when we were talking about, I could only control or, or, or really sort of invest in my intent not necessarily controlling the outcomes. The clients are navigating the exact same thing. You know, the, the client who may have the perception, but I've spent all this money or I've spent all this time or I've put all of this emotional investment into fixing this. Why isn't it better? And I have to, you know, really have that conversation to say, well, this is a living, breathing creature and we can influence, but we can't necessarily control in the way we would like to. Do you have additional resources available? And I, and I say that not hope, you know, hopefully not coming from a place of judgment of, well, you're going to have to do more if you want this to be better. But more from the standpoint of saying, if you're at a point where, you know, it's as good as it's going to get with the resources that you have at your available disposal. And if that's not good enough, then we may have to consider alternative outcomes. And I say that not from a place of judgment, not from a place of criticism. I'm not trying to coerce any sort of outcomes, only to say if where we are is not safe is not good enough from a quality of life standpoint for the animal or for perhaps for their, for their family, that's not a place that we get to stay, right? We, what do we do next? What is our active decision about where or how we're moving forward? And that again, becomes my opportunity to let the client know, at least to the best of my ability, what outcomes exist. And, you know, as, as I say, within that particular webinar is, you know, when we're in that sticky spot, Every outcome has its own challenges. There, there isn't going to be a way in most cases to sort of uncover this magical solution that all of a sudden you know, feels comfortable and easy and fast and effective that really doesn't exist in those complicated cases. And so for me, I, I will have the conversation with my clients to say, here, here's the pros and cons of this option. Here's the pros and cons of this one. This one's hard for these reasons. This one's hard for these reasons. Choose your heart. What works for you? Sure. Do you think behavioural euthanasia would be for the owner to, to decide ultimately? You can only make a recommendation, um, or 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 is that is that the case from your side? It is. Uh, you know, an owner in most cases is sort of the owner caregiver. In some cases, that might be the rescue, you know, or whoever sort of is the owner or caregiver of that animal is ultimately charged with making those decisions. 
I honestly cannot think of any cases where I've told the owner outright, you must do this. It's not my decision. Animals are property, regardless of how I feel about that, which is a whole separate conversation. The the fact of the matter is, that is the case. It is their, that is their property. And I can give them the options and I can give them the pros and cons, but me putting my viewpoint into their situation, I find is um, inappropriately levering uh, a power dynamic that actually changes the way in which clients make their decisions and how they navigate the fallout of what that coercion may have looked like. And so for me, as much as I understand that the clients sometimes come to us asking difficult questions and just sort of hoping that we give them a clear answer, what they're ultimately looking for in most cases is clarity, not the answer. And I can give them clarity to the best of my ability but the honest answer when they ask those questions, well, what would you do or how would you go forward? The honest answer is I don't know. I don't have the same relationship or household or spouse or budget or any of those details. And so it would be inappropriate for me to insert myself into their decision making process. The only exceptions to that, I always have to put this little caveat in there. If there is a vulnerable population at risk. If we're talking about kids in the home or public safety that's being endangered by the way in which an animal is being managed, or perhaps there's an elderly or a a cognitively impaired uh, population that is that is going to be affected, then there may be times where we have to get an advocacy group involved. But even still, I'm not telling them what to do. I'm saying this is the way in which this particular animal must be managed in order to maintain safety. If you choose to do that in such a way that's not maintaining the safety of these populations, then advocacy groups may need to get involved. But it's, you know, I'm I'm not dangling that as a threat. I'm not saying again that, you know, I'm here to euthanize your animal uh, to answer your question. No, I don't. I don't believe that that's my or our collective responsibility within those cases. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's so valuable. Um, I'm actually dealing with a really tricky case at the moment where, where, where that may be the outcome. And that's just so valuable to hear from me personally. So thank you for, for that, Chris. Do you ever find people who are coming to you for that outcome, though? Have you ever had that? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, but, you know, I hear that, you know, I hear you don't really know, but what would you do? I'm like, yeah. And, and I, I double down, you know, I basically say, no, I re- I really truthfully don't know. And I'm concerned about this based on what you've told me. I'm concerned about this limitation. I'm concerned about this outcome. So I can sort of re-echo the risk assessment or the concerns that I have about the case or, you know, again, whatever limitations are that they've already shared. I can echo that back. But the moment I find, and this comes back to that sort of boundary setting, the moment I kind of going, well, I mean, if I was in your position, that for me is the automatic red flag of going, "Eh, no, 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 you can't. That's that's not your perspective. There's no possible way you can reliably insert yourself, even with all the best intentions of empathy and sympathy and all of those sort of collaborative emotional strategies. It's ultimately their decision. Yeah, great. Thank you. That's so helpful. Um, and where can people find out more about that? Um, navigating difficult conversations. Is that on Mike's website? And I think I've got a link here if I can just bring it up just to show everyone. Yes, yes, that's that's the one right there. Yes, that one's going to be there, um, and that I believe is available for after after. Uh, so we, the the live version is there. 
um, or is done already, but I do believe that the the recording will be available for purchase afterwards. Um, and if anybody's looking for any additional conversations as well around, uh, you know, navigating client communication or any of these other viewpoints on some of these strategies, I do try to keep um, and, you know, the conversations like this one, for example, when this one is released, I will put a link to that on my website, drpockle.com. Uh, so if somebody says, oh, I really liked his particular, you know, viewpoint on this, going to drpockle.com and then going to the media tab, then you can find podcasts, you can find articles, you can find videos uh, of different conversations, again, like this one. Some are webinars webinars for purchase, other conversations like this are, are available for streaming, really just to, to continue those conversations forward into the community as best we can. Fantastic. And all the links for this will be uh, on the podcast too from my end. So if, you, if you're watching this back later, then all the links will be there. So so you can find more about yourself, Chris, at, at your website, which is up on the screen just now, and that will be in the description. You can also find you at this one too, is that right? Nano Behaviour Clinic. And that's the clinic that you is in full time, is that right? That is correct. Yep, that's the, the clinic that I own here in, uh, in Portland. Uh, and that's where we, it's just myself and three other veterinarians, uh, one who is board certified, one who is a general practitioner with a practice limited to behavior. And then I have one of my one of my residents works with me in the practice here as well. Uh, I've got a second resident who sees cases independently at his practice in Australia. Uh, but yes, Animal Behavior Clinic, that's where you can find more about sort of the professional services that we offer through the clinic. Sure. And what have you got coming up in the pipeline? Any interest in seminars, conferences anything coming up? So you've yeah, got a couple of things. We'll be in Chicago next month. We're in September now. Yes, October next month for the Aggression in Dogs Conference. I'm really excited for that one. Uh, Mike Shikashio and I are giving a weekend seminar in uh, the Denver area coming up in November. Uh, and then from there, I've got a couple of new webinars coming out through Dog iBox as well uh, on some on some new topics there. So again, I, I try to keep those um as best I can, sort of the, the calendar up to date and announcing those on, on my, my social media channels as well. And so, you know, if people are looking just to kind of stay in touch, by all means, follow me through Facebook or Instagram. Uh, if you want to connect with me, I, I encourage that as well. I do just request send yourself, a, not send yourself, send me a little bit of information about yourself as an introduction. Um, I, I'd love to know who you are and where our paths crossed and 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 how I can be sort of of value and of service in that relationship. Oh, fantastic. I wish I was more local to you because I would definitely be there, but it's a little bit of a trip for me. Maybe Clicker Expo, though, in uh, March. Um, are you, you, you speaking about yes, this? Yes, I am speaking at Clicker Expo in March uh, in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, and I think if everything goes according to plan, I think there's still a plan for the, the Woof UK conference somewhere at the end of 2022 right. that I was on the docket for that when it was the last iteration that was supposed to happen uh, mid pandemic. So fingers crossed, I may be coming across the pond to, uh, to, to your neck of the woods as well. Love it. Well, I'm definitely going to click at Expo, so I'll hopefully get to, to meet you in person there. And I appreciate Excellent. We're, we're coming up for an hour and that probably brings us to a, to a natural conclusion, Chris, and you're, you're a busy person. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's been fantastic talking to you. In the chat, I'm sure everybody will show you a lot of love and uh, I really appreciate it. So thank you very much for doing this, Chris. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it very much. Uh, all my best. Thanks very much, Chris. Bye for now.